You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the bridge. How are you? Good to see you all again. Some for the first time. My name is Randy, and we are just glad to have you. Ted, how's the hand? You doing okay? Good. Good. All right. Ted, Ted suffered a little, little malady. But he's healing up. Good deal. Welcome, everybody. One quick announcement, and uh, then we're taking an offering. Going to dive right into teaching because uh, we want to do communion at the close of our service. Uh, I was working. I wasn't really intending on doing communion this morning. I'm just going over my notes this morning, and it just um, just struck me that the message begs for communion at the at the end, and uh, I think you'll understand why. So I'll edit a little bit on the fly. And uh, skip a few things, but we want to make time to do that. One quick announcement. Tomorrow morning, men, 6 a.m., Monday morning prayer. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. Uh, You start out at 6 a.m. like you have beaten the world. You understand that? If you make it to a prayer meeting at 6 a.m., do you understand how you can just brag about that for the rest of the week? Really? Like, you can refer to it in conversations on, like, Thursday When your friend talks about being busy, you can say, well, you know, Monday morning at 6 a.m. prayer. And anything you say after that, they're just in awe of you because you have charted the course. No, started last week. We had a dozen guys. It was great. Um, One person had to slip out right before over, but I told myself that same thing happened to Jesus. You know, he had 12 and one slipped out. But uh, that was that over the line. I can't tell. It was it was close to the line. It was close. Um, so anyway, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., it is at, what is it? I always forget the name of that shopping plaza. The Villages of Seville, which is directly behind the St. Luke's facility on state line, roughly across from that new QT. When I said the new QT, all of you knew exactly where that was, okay? So across state line, Villages of Seville, it's a little shopping plaza. And it is the finest dog washing uh, facility in that. It really is. It used to be a dog washing place, but now we have redeemed it. So uh, join us there, 6 a.m., 6 to 7 o'clock. This is how it works. Some of you are going, I don't know what I want, if I actually want to say yes to this. What am I getting into? For an hour, we start with a passage of Scripture, and we spend about 20 minutes just praying prayers of agreement with that Scripture. And we put ourselves in that passage. We say, yes, we believe this because of this. And Lord, we're, we're declaring these things for about 20 minutes. Then we intercede for about 25 minutes for our families and for the church. And then we take communion together and start our day. So one hour in and out, 6 a.m. tomorrow. We are going to dive into um, what is turning out to be point two of a story that we talked about last week. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings 2. And we'll be in a couple of different places there. We're talking this morning about escaping the curses of the past. Have you ever had a season of life where you look around and you tell yourself, this is not working, okay? Like the way I'm living, the, how we're maybe spending, how we're budgeting our time, how we're trying to get things done, this is not working and I'm doing the best I can. And I don't think it's my fault. I've repented of everything I can think of that I've done. I've repented of a few things I didn't know I did. I've repented of things that people thought I did that I don't think I did. And I've repented of things I never thought of until just now. You know, it's like I just, God, whatever it is, I want to do well, but yet things don't work. It's terribly discouraging. And that really is the purpose of the enemy in your life for that season, is to convince you to surrender territory that by all means you should have a legal right to. 
If you missed last Sunday, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the discussion about the handoff of the ministry from Elijah to Elisha. But we want to kind of move on to the next phase here in that story. Elijah, of course, is taken up into a whirlwind. And for all of the craziness in that story, the real point of that is an older man investing in a younger man who says, I want to have everything you have and more, and he follows him for six years. Today, we're picking up where we left off and building on one of those themes that we talked about, about connectedness, but probably not the connectedness like you might expect. If you missed last week, we talked about this place in in Utah called the Pando Grove. Pando Grove looks like 108 acres of aspen trees. In reality, it's a 108-acre aspen tree. It's all one big tree. All of the roots below are connected. Everything is one big organism. Scientists estimate that there are about 47,000 what they would call stems or what we would think of as individual trees in this grove. The oldest one's about 130 years old. The grove is thousands of years old. You're like, how does that work? Because stems have died off and others have taken its place, but the organism has not died. The parallels to the body of Christ are profound. We look at a congregation and we go, okay, well, this is church. Or you may pan back a little bit and look at the congregation across a city and multiple congregations and say, that's church. Or if you're really broad-minded, you might think of the church around the world and think, oh, that's the, the big C church. Jesus looks at all of those who believe and all who have ever believed and says, that's the church. That means you're a part of the church with the forefathers of the faith, the desert fathers, the apostles, all of that is one big church. And there is, like, that's good news for us because our roots are so intertwined, so intertwined that what can tear that out? Let me tell you, the church is built to last. It's built to work for a long time. And if you try and uproot what you think is one tree, it's as if all of the other stems, if it's properly connected, fight for it. At the same time, that connectedness is one of its downfalls because what happens on the edges affects that in the middle. They say the Pando Grove hasn't grown for about 30 or 40 years because of pests and of animals on the edges. Just a side note, the church is often more connected with those in the center of the grove than those on the edge. But what happens on the edge works its way towards the middle. So we find ourselves here at this story, at the handoff, the passing of the baton, Elijah to Elisha, placing of the cloak of the mantle on Elisha's back, and Elisha receiving permission to walk out the anointing of Elijah in a double fashion, or as a, as a firstborn son, twice as far, twice as much. And history tells us the story of Elisha, while he carries the anointing of Elijah, he walks it out in a very different way. Like, if you didn't see this connection with him, you almost wouldn't realize it's the same anointing. If you study Elijah and his ministry over the years, it's over-the-top dramatic. High visibility and a little violent. A lot violent at times. His ministry starts with a bang. Elijah starts 1 Kings 17, 1 through 3. It says, now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead. Stop. That's actually his entire biography. That's all we know about Elijah. He like just drops out of the sky from Tishba, okay? Says to Ahab, the king, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he drops out of the sky. We don't know where he comes from. And he calls a drought, tells the king to his face, it's not going to rain anymore. Then it says, the word of the Lord told him, just walk away. 
So he calls a drought, and just that's how Elijah lands on the scene. And his ministry is crazy. Over this series of time, he, you know, he orders the death of 450 men at one pop. It's very large. It's very public. It's very confrontational. And he is always irritating somebody. Elisha, however, his protege, comes into his own, and he has the mantle of Elijah because all of the school of the prophets recognize in 2 Kings 2.15, they say, oh, the spirit of Elijah, Elijah rests on Elisha. This is, oh, that thing, it's the same thing. But he has his own personality and ministry emphasis, and he is decidedly different from his mentor. Where Elijah was concerned with the black and white of righteousness and unrighteousness, Elisha is more concerned about compassion and healing. Very different ministries. It's not to say that Elijah wasn't compassionate. At one point, he raises a boy from the dead. And it's not to say that Elisha doesn't care about righteousness. But they, this was their focuses were different. Elijah would prophesy directly to kings. He'd walk up. You don't even know where he comes from. And prophesies to Ahab, there's going to be a drought. Elisha is constantly sending somebody else. He just tell, hey, go tell the king that da 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 That's how he communicates with leaders. Elijah spoke to national sin. Elisha addresses local or individual needs. Their relationship with people and their ministry is very different. Yet Elijah carried the mantle, of, or Elisha carried the mantle of Elijah like a firstborn son. And while Elisha is less talked about in sermons, he did well over twice as many miracles as Elijah did. And Elijah ministers 14 years and is taken up in a whirlwind. Elisha goes on and ministers for 50 years. Same mantle, same anointing, very different. He really did carry the spirit of Elijah far more than twice as far as Elijah did himself. He just did it his own way. Some of you find yourself in an Elijah role and you are discipling someone who's younger than you, maybe one of your kids. Be prepared for Elisha to carry your anointing out differently than you did. It's going to look different. Can you imagine the pressure Elisha would have lived under had Elijah stuck around? Like, it might have been the mercy of God to Elisha to go, it's going to be easier if I just take him now. Because what you're going to do is so different. See, we confuse calling or personality with anointing. You can carry the same anointing in a different calling or a different personality. And that's what Elisha did. And I want to continue talking about connectedness today, but maybe in a way that you've never considered it. We talked about connectedness to each other in a parallel root system last week. But we want to talk a little bit about connectedness to the past. We are all deeply connected to the past in ways that we probably don't think about enough. Many of those connections are very positive. The writer of Hebrews is going through the story of the litany of the fathers and mothers of the faith in chapter 11. Then he gets to chapter 12 and he tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely and lets us run with endurance the race set before us. Somehow, those giants of the faith of the past are looking at us with hope for the future and they're cheering us on and they're saying, go, go. Elijah himself, in some regards, is probably cheering on Elisha, saying, go. Might have been saying, I wouldn't have done it that way. But he's cheering for him. 
Spiritual fathers and mothers do not demand homogeny. They don't demand that everybody looks alike. They celebrate how God is moving in the next generation. From Elijah to Elisha or David to Saul, things often look differently when the anointing moves from one person to the next. David's first up to bat tries on Saul's armor and goes, I can't do it this way. It's got to be something different. It's been that way for generations, even in the New Testament. You know, I imagine sometimes the, the conversation between John the Baptist and his parents when John the Baptist has the sit-down talk and explains to him, I'm going into ministry. You know, heart skips a beat because his father knows what this means for him, but his father's excited. You can imagine his father going, stay here, goes to the back bedroom, brings out his vestments that he first wore when he began to minister to the Lord. Here, try these. It's not going to look like that. It's going to look different. So in that respect, we're all connected to the past in a positive way. Nobody gets where they are untouched by yesterday, and hopefully that's mostly good. But Elisha's early ministry starts with people who have a negative connection to the past. Like something back there is wrong. And it's not even really their fault. But it's still back there. That's what we want to talk about. When through no fault of our own, there's something in the past that haunts us. And I use that word haunts not to give it a spooky connotation, but just to say this is real. Some of you have things in your past that you are 100% not responsible for. Like, it's not even 2080. It's not 60-40. It's like, that happened so far in the past and was so disconnected from you, yet it haunts you and it affects your life, your state of mind, even events that happen to you, and it's not really your fault. To the point that when you hear others talk about their godly heritage, even though you're serving God and you're, you're completely in love with Jesus, you hear them talk about their godly heritage that you don't have, and you're kind of like, whoop-dee-doo. I don't have that. That labeled you the child of an alcoholic. What part of that was your fault? None of that was your fault. Yet you're still living with some of the residue of that, even though everybody responsible for it's long gone. Maybe you were brought up in poverty that was the result of foolish choices. And there's a cloud over you when it comes to finances, and none of that was your fault. That's what you learned. But it still haunts you. Maybe you were abused in some way, and it's caused you to accept and expect the, la the label of being a victim even when it's not true. But it's, it hangs over you. Somewhere in the past, unrelated to you, someone committed a transgression, and years later, you're stuck with the bill. Ever get a bill for something that wasn't really yours? Like, and it keeps coming? That happens to some of you. That's the situation that Elisha walks into almost immediately after receiving the mantle from Elijah. He returns from Elijah being taken up in the whirlwind. And as he walks up, there's this funny little sidebar that just, just kind of makes me laugh. He comes back to the school of prophets, the young bucks, the interns that had all gathered on the other side of the river. And he hits the, the river with his cloak and he walks across on dry ground and, and they tell him, oh, wow, you really do have the spirit of Elijah. But immediately they'd say, can we go try and find Elijah? 
Like, we know you got the coke. We know, coke, we know concerned he, like, fell out of the whirlwind or something. Like, maybe we'll find him over the hill and he needs medical attention. <laughs> Second Kings 2, 16 to 18, they said, Behold, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go seek your master. It may be the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or in the valley. And he said, you shall not send. Elisha says, no, 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 don't, don't send guys. He's gone. But they urged him until he was ashamed. <laughs> they like wear him down. Your kids ever wear you down? And he wears them down. Can we please go? We like you, but can we go, please go find Elijah? Finally, he's like, okay, go send. Then they sent 50 men. And for three days they sought him, but they did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not tell you not to go? He's like, I told you so. He went up in the whirlwind. He's gone. Suddenly to the discussion, those switches from him talking to these interns, and he's talking to the people who live in the city of Jericho. All right, so he's transitioned. Now he's talking to different people in 2 Kings 2.19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, get this sentence. This is one of the most important things we'll say today. Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. When they say the situation of this city, they're talking about literally how it's situated. They're not talking about politics or relationships. They're literally talking about how it sets on the land. They said, it's, this is situ- it's beautifully situated. When we lived in East Tennessee, when you would look for a house, periodically you'd see a line in a house listing that would say level lot. East Tennessee, that was a big thing because everybody's lot was like at a 45 degree angle. Kids go out to play, they'd roll down the street. You'd have to go down and get them. And you would look for a house that was situated beautifully. The city of Jericho, they say, is situated pleasantly. It sits nice. It's located on the west side of the Jordan River, on the north end of the Dead Sea, although it's an extremely low elevation, 850 feet below sea level. It's one of the lowest places that people live on the earth. Now, as a Midwesterner, being 850 feet below sea level would just make me nervous. I'm thinking all you are is one guy with an irrigation hose from just totally ruining your life as he runs a pipe from the city. You know, this could go so bad. But they live 850 feet below sea. In the Gospels, when they talk about Jesus and the disciples going down to Jericho, they're not talking about them going from Jerusalem south. It's northeast. They're talking about literally them going down to Jericho. So it's pleasantly situated Although the climate was arid, less than seven inches of rain a year, but it was naturally irrigated by a spring. It was almost like an oasis. It was a beautiful place when the springs ran clean. When life is working for you, you can overlook a lot of things. You know, when cash flow is good, you can overlook a lot of other things. When your family is healthy, you can overlook. But while everything was working for them, it was a great place to live. Some people are living lives that are working in the moment, but they're really never that far from total collapse. Like when it all works, it works, but one little shift of circumstances and the wheels fall off. So they say it's beautifully situated, but the water is bad. Well, the best thing about the place was the water. There were clean springs there. There was no rain. It's it's a little bit like saying, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? You know, well, there's that one thing about the play that kind of affected how she thinks about the play. So it's beautifully situated. They don't want to really admit that things are just, the wheels are falling off. 
but the water is bad. And it was going to get worse without divine intervention because the thing couldn't sustain itself without the springs. The city would cease to exist. Scientists tell us that people have lived in this location in some form or fashion for thousands of years. Like it was one of the earliest places we find a habitation because the springs worked. But when you change the circumstances a little bit, all that falls apart. We learn that their troubles extended from unfruitfulness of crops. Of course, you can't, you know, you can't irrigate, you can't grow crops when your spring is poisoned, but it actually extends to their own miscarrying of children. And it says the land caused barrenness on people. I'm not going to go down a bunny trail here. It's actually not a bunny trail. It's a major road, but I want to acknowledge it. I don't want to just drive by it. Okay, we want to talk about this for a second. We'll talk about it probably more at another time. There is a place where geography and the spiritual realm intersect. I'm not talking about Area 51 in New Mexico, okay, or Sedona, where you go find a vortex and disappear up into the New Age. It's not what I'm talking about. But there are passages where the Bible speaks at length about the effect of spiritual activity on land. Genesis 4, 10 through 12, I mean the earliest account we have of a murder. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it'll no longer yield to you its strength. You'll be a fugitive and a wanderer. He's like, you've poisoned the earth with your sin. Something you did spiritually, physically, affected the ground that you live on. Isaiah 4, 5 talks about the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. There are places on the earth that suffer under a curse because of what happened on the surface of the earth there. I wish you could see what I see. It's like about 80% of you are going, mm. uh, lean back. It's only a couple of degrees, but it's there. Because you have never thought about this in your life. You've never thought about the effect of spiritual things on physical land. It's all through the Bible. It really is. The reason we don't think about this is not because it's unbiblical, it's because we are really just still products of the Enlightenment. All right? Uh, Okay, I have time to, to go backwards in time here for just a second, all right? Most of us know a couple of ages of thought, all right? Our grandparents were modernists. They, they thought that uh, everything could kind of be broken down to a, to a math equation. Then our parents and some of us were postmoderns. We kind of moved away from that. We have a hard time believing that anything's really true unless it's true to you. All right? And our kids are growing up in a world of being metamodernists, which is like a postmodernist with artificial intelligence where they don't even have to make any decisions for themselves. But we still carry within us the move of the Enlightenment from the 1700s where humanity decided that we could create a better future apart from spiritual realities and we detach the physical world from the spiritual realm. And we don't think, like never before in history had that been done. But all through the Bible, it's there. And that's where the residents of Jericho found themselves. Life should be working for them 
There were springs in an arid place. It was well situated. It's a level lot. Nobody's going to roll down the hill. But it wasn't working. Something spiritual has set off things in the physical. Some of you know these times where life just does not work. Like every appliance in your house breaks at once. And then when you get in the car to go to the store to get one, the car breaks. Okay? Or it's relational snag after relational snag, and you start getting texts from people you offended, and you're having to answer, I don't even know who this is. You know what I mean? You ever got one of those texts from somebody, this long apology, and you're like, who dis new phone? You don't want to, it's like you feel bad. Sorry, I, I don't even know what I did. But relationally, things fall apart on you. It seems like you're doing all the right things. You're getting all of the wrong outcomes. Scripture says that sometimes, like pain, we bring on those frustrations ourselves. Sometimes things don't work and it's our fault. Haggai 1, 5, and 6 says, Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes in it. Some of you are going, I got that bag. I know that bag. I have worked hard. I put the money in the bag. It's gone. It's the opposite of, of Jeff's tithing story. Now you know where the money's going. It's going to Jeff's bag. Okay? But some of you have been there. You've worked hard and you're like, I can never get ahead. I remember Alan Hood talking about a season where they were uh, having some financial struggles and he decided he was going to go do more itinerant ministry and travel and hadn't really heard that from the Lord. But it's felt like we, And he said, the more I went out and the more honorariums I brought home, the more, like, it was just gone. He's like, it was just gone. Some of that is our own doing. It's in Haggai's story, it was their own fault. He's telling them, consider your ways. However... In Elijah's day, it was the fault of those who had gone long before. It was their ancestors who had transgressed, defiling the land and leaving their descendants to clean up the mess of their behavior. You see, somebody in history made a decision, and now they are living with the after effects. Our friend Lou Engle often talks about being a seventh generation preacher. Seven generations. His kids that are in ministry are the eighth generation of people that are in ministry. He said, he said we're afraid to quit because we feel that we're living under seven or eight generations of this blessing cascading down of seven or eight generations of righteousness that has an effect on that. We would like to think of the blessing of the godly heritage or the blessing of a nation that got some things right, but have you ever considered that we might be living under a curse of an ungodly heritage or we may suffer for the wrongs of a nation? Because you can't have it only one way. Either every human starts with a completely clean slate or we can inherit the blessings of a godly heritage or we can inherit the pain of an ungodly one. But you can't have it both ways. They were living under what people would come to call the curse of Jericho. In Jericho's history, so far back that no human being alive at this point was responsible for it, there was an oath that was pronounced over the people of Jericho. It was a curse, and God heard it. If you go way back to the time when the Hebrews were taking the promised land, and they come to Jericho, we all know the song, Okay, before there was a song, there was a story. And in this story, they wipe out the city and Joshua lays an oath on them in Joshua 6.26. 
when he says, Cursed before the Lord shall be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son, he shall set up his gates. Joshua says, whoever rebuilds this city, it's going to cost him two boys, the older and the younger. Now, you go, okay, that's history. That's not only history to these people, it's ancient history. It's 600 years earlier. 600 years go by, and 1 Kings 16, 34, in Ahab's time, somebody goes, we ought to rebuild Jericho. 600 years has gone by. Surely it's safe. We, can do, we don't need to deal with that curse. Hail of Bethel rebuilt Jericho, 1 Kings 16, 34. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abraham. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. 600 years later, the guy that said, he, is he responsible for the leveling of Jericho? No. He's like, wasn't there, didn't do it, don't even remember. I, like, my family moved here later. The curse isn't so much on him, the curse is on the ground. And in the building of the city, he loses two sons. So the land is cursed, and coincidentally, surely not. For the first time in history, the water of the springs runs bitter, and it's poisoned. The springs that came up from the ground are no longer any good. The rebuilder, Hiel, he suffered under the curse because of his disobedience. He built this, you know, he rebuilt this city, didn't even understand what, was, what he was doing, and the city struggled under the curse that was on the way to the land. Previous generations' mistakes were causing barrenness in their own lives. And that offends every bit of your enlightened mind. Like, doesn't it? That's not my fault. But you're still losing money out of the bottom of your purse like crazy. Like, I understand it's not our fault, but the curse is on the land. There are decisions made by our predecessors, maybe our parents, maybe governmental leaders maybe pastors that we have been led by that affect our position and our fruitfulness today. It's not our fault, but here we are. See, that's why the overturning of Roe v. Wade was such a big deal. That's why it was so big, because it was a sin on our land, on the federal level that we endorsed that, that like the bloodshed. Oh, that was a sin. That's why the failure of the value of them both amendment in Kansas is so tragic. It's because we still need to battle for Kansas because there's a curse on the land. We're not responsible. You're going, ah, no, <laughs> I'm not responsible for that. I voted the right way. I've said all the right. I'm not saying you're responsible for it. I'm saying you need to deal with it. Okay? Some of you have made peace with it, but think about it this way. If we don't deal with that, it rolls down to subsequent generations. And the, the ramifications of that can be economic, they can be physical, they can be trauma-related. Pain moves through generations until one person is brave enough to feel it. And then the, their kids are set free. You want to bless your children? Go dig the skeletons out of the closet and put them at the curb. Like, these weren't my skeletons, they were in the house when you bought it. Some people actually resent and I've struggled with this as I've thought about this I Kelsey will tell you I just I'm 
an enlightenment dude. I'm like, I don't like this. I think this is kind of dumb. I'm not responsible for that. So people resent asking God to break off curses of the past because it wasn't their fault. It's true, but you do know life could be better if you did it. Like, you can move beyond this. Just because it wasn't your fault doesn't mean you don't have the opportunity to deal with it. One of my favorite storytellers is Garrison Keillor. Some of you remember the old uh, Prairie Home Companion stories. Tell stories about this little town in Minnesota. And it was so close to my upbringing in reality that I used to joke, I was like 19 before I realized it wasn't a documentary. Like, I, it was so real. He would tell about these characters, and I'm like, yeah, I know that guy, I know that guy. It was just, it was crazy. But he would tell this story about this very orderly Scandinavian family. Their family motto was freedom through responsible living. And they were the most responsible family. Everybody always did their chores. But one August day, they had the door open on their, their kitchen screen door because of the nice breeze that was blowing through. And a chicken runs in the house, not their chicken, runs in the house into the living room, circles the living room three times and falls over and dies. Just out of clock. Out of clock. Get it? not as funny if I have to point it out. It's still pretty funny. I'll work on that. So the chicken dies and lays there in the middle of the room and the most responsible family in the world leaves it there. Walks around it for months. It just begins to rot. And when friends go, why don't you do something with the chicken? They're like, well, it's not our chicken. We don't have to deal with it. Technically, it was not their chicken. But some of us have things rotting in our house for which we are not directly responsible for, not our chicken. You still get the privilege of dealing with it. What was Joshua's intent when he cursed the... He he just didn't want Jericho rebuilt, but it gets rebuilt, okay? It's not God's intent for you to suffer under things so far in the past that you are not responsible for, but there are environmental repercussions for sin, and it takes prophetic obedience to move beyond those repercussions so that we can live in a spot well-situated with springs of living water. 2 Kings chapter 2, 20 to 21. This was Elisha's fix for this. He said, bring me a new bowl, put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and he went to the spring of water, and he threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage will come from it. That's just weird. I mean, it's just weird. What? You just dump, like put the Morton salt in a new thing. Just, that is, that's what we were waiting on? This seems a little bizarre. But there's something more to this. This isn't just mystical. It's not just hocus pocus, okay? The new bowl is indicative of a new container. It's a new way of doing things. It's something different, something we don't know yet. Okay, what we're doing here, we know but we're stumbling towards what we don't know. And it really is the Lord. And it's how the Lord works. Jesus said, we're going to put new wine. We're going to put those in the new wineskins. The old wineskins will burst. So it's got to be flexible. In this case, this is, this is Elisha saying, no, bring me something new here that hasn't been defiled by previous processes. Don't bring me a bowl that you fed the dog out of. Don't bring me, you know, the bowl you put by the kid that night they were sick. Don't bring me that bowl. Bring me a new bowl. For some of you to break free of the weight of things in the past, you're going to need a new container. You're going to have to do things differently. 
You think about things and even your mode of expecting God to move are based on how he has always done it. You believe negative things about how God works because of what you've seen and you can't carry what he wants to do in your heart. He says, no, bring me a new bowl. So they bring him a new bowl and the salt, you're like, salt? What, what did we just do here? The salt is representative of the work of Jesus in a new container. We read a lot in the New Testament about us being the salt of the earth, but what is it about us that is any different than anybody else other than Jesus? Okay? Jesus is the original salt. He preserves. He gives flavor. He makes thirsty. All of the things that we are told to do in our culture, be salt and light, all of that salt and light comes from Jesus. So in the physical, Elisha is declaring a new day for the people of Jericho by pouring this salt into the well and purifying it. In the spiritual, he's pointing to a day to come when Jesus can be applied to any situation in the past, bringing healing and preservation and restoration, even the things that burden you that are not your fault. Even those abusive things that you suffered under that weren't your fault but haunt you. Jesus can set you free from those things. And you've struggled with some going, I, I, I don't even know what to do with that. It wasn't me. Goes, I know, I know. But there, there's, there's a curse attached here. and We need to break it off. I want to ask if Rachel will come for a second. Some of you are suffering under the misdeeds of others. It's not your fault that the well's poisoned. It's not your fault you're living under the press of others' misdeeds. Jesus died for your sins. He also died for your suffering. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There's so much going on in that one little verse. Transgressions, our wrongs, crossing boundaries that we, we know better and we do them anyway. Our iniquities, our proclivity to do what is evil. Our, our physical bodies that suffer. But there's that little phrase that we don't talk that much about, about his chastisement that has brought us peace. Sin takes away peace, and sometimes the sin of others can actually steal your peace. Sometimes the things done in the past can steal the peace that Jesus died for for you to have. The New Living Translation says, he was beaten so we could be whole. So your peace could be restored. If Elijah was applying the character of Christ to the poison well, the New Testament parallel or fulfillment of that act is to apply the blood of Jesus to our lives. This is a predecessor to the ordinance of communion. So this morning, a couple of different places, there are small bags with communion elements. There's one over here along the aisles. Look around. If there's one near you, if you would do me a favor, grab that and pass those. Just make sure that everybody gets one. Because we want to take communion over ourselves, but honestly, over our past, over our current situation. We want to ask God to cleanse the land, to remove the curse of our situation. You're like, I'm not responsible for this. I know you're not, but it's still wearing you out. It's still weighing on you heavy. Anybody did not receive 
There's, okay, in the middle, we need some. Sally, thank you. If, if there's another bag, if I can get one. Everybody got some? As we do this this morning, let me just tell you a, a fragment of a story. Sally, can I get one of those, please? Thank you. Tell you a fragment of a story. That's okay. Thank you. There are times in our lives when we have chosen to receive communion over ourselves and also over situations that we're just broken through no fault of our own. We struggled with a house one time. I won't go into but I mean, we just struggled with it for a long time. We actually dug out the, the closing papers and the deed of that house and stood, Kelsey and I, late night, late one night in our kitchen, over the kitchen island, we took communion over the deed of that house. We said, Lord, cleanse whatever's here. Some of you need to take communion over your marriage license. Go back and say, Lord, we are struggling here. We've repented of everything we know to repent of, but Lord, what do we, what do we bring into this thing? What curse resides on our lives because of something we, 600 years had passed. And we're so quick to go, oh, it wasn't our fault. No, but you're still living in the travesty of it. You're going to stare at that chicken laying in the li- middle of the living room the rest of your life and say, it's not my chicken. No. We pour salt in the well. We receive the blood of Jesus and we say over our lives, over our children, over the land we live on, over our situation, over our businesses. Lord, I'm tired of every time we make a business decision, it blows up in our face. We pray about it. It still blows up. Lord, will you break the curses that might be attached from, I don't even know. It takes a humility to go before the Lord and ask him to do that. Or you can keep your pride in your chicken. Who wants that? If you have Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Reading from verse 23. And well, let's say, I want to ask if you would pray over the communion this morning. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, let's say, would you pray over the body? Father, we come before you, and we say thank you for the body that was broken that makes us whole. Thank you, Lord God, that we don't, we don't have to live a life with a dead chicken in our house. Thank you, Lord God, that all the dead things that causes strife and causes anxiety and causes death to roam around in our home can be gone because of your, uh, of your broken body to make us whole. We receive this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Receive the body. Stand with me for a moment before we receive the blood. Some of you, as I talked about this, you thought of situations under which you are completely not responsible, but yet the wheels fall off at every turn. Like you are trying, and you're like, Lord, I think my heart's pure, but there's something here that goes beyond myself, 
and I am just tired enough to living with the chicken in my life that I wish, Lord, to receive your, your body and your blood over the land that I occupy. I want to curse whatever it is in the past. I want to deal with it. If it was my family who set me up for failure by how they talked about money, if it was something that was done on the land that I live on that I couldn't even, I couldn't even figure out what it is, but there's something that is holding, like, as crazy as that sounded to you when I started talking, the more I talked about it, suddenly you're like, I think I know what he's talking about. I've got that situation. If that is a part of your story, and maybe it's not, but I have a hunch in some cases it is, and you've never been able to figure out why on earth this area of life always fails. If, if that's your situation, I'm going to ask Rachel, just hold on to your elements. If you just lead us in a, in a chorus for a moment. And let's just give people a moment to talk to the Lord about that. Just as she begins to sing, just close our eyes. Maybe just lift your communion emblem. Hold it before him and say, Lord, we apply your blood to this poisoned area. That I'm not responsible for it, but now I'm stewarding it. representative of your blood and we receive the blood over the land that we live on we receive it over our relationships over our businesses over those areas of our lives that just aren't working and we have done everything we know to do we've repented over it but Lord whatever it is we ask that it would just be covered by the blood and I speak freedom over marriages, freedom over deeds over houses, freedom over finances, freedom over relational clarity for that couple that has misunderstood each other over and over and over and over and over again. We just apply the blood of Jesus to those situations right now. Let's receive the blood this way. Worship for Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes white as Sing it over your own lives this morning. Oh, 
receive the blood of Jesus into our mind, our body, our spirit, the very land we dwell in, all of our areas of responsibility, we ask that you would seal that, that we would walk in freedom from the past, in freedom and in victory from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.